Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Rendell. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's been a couple weeks since we have been here. My family uh, got to go see my family, extended family. It's been almost two years, and so that was wonderful. We took a little vacation, went up to Glacier National Park, which was also wonderful. Uh, I um, have found over the years uh, a really life-giving rhythm in delegating the, the pulpit in the month of June. And so for the last several years, um, one of the team has planned out the teaching series, and the team's done the bulk of the teaching. So uh, that's as long as I typically go between times here. Uh, it's, it's a refreshing rhythm for, for Mari and me, and it's also an opportunity for, uh, for leadership for our team to be able to, to express that gift and kind of stretch those muscles. And having Pastor Daniel and Pastor, Dean, Pastor Neil done an amazing job guiding us through the book of Hebrews. You know, yeah, no kidding. Thank God. Great job. Here's the, here's the soft pink underbelly, the sinister side of that applause. When you are me and you delegate the planning of the series to the staff and you go away for a little bit and you work on other things for a little bit, you're kind of thinking, you know, we're going to do a text series through a book of the Bible, kind of up the middle, June, low water mark for the year. Everyone's on vacation. I'm on vacation. So I can pop in and, and jump right into the text. And the Holy Spirit and them agreed that Hebrews was where we should focus. And you're like, you know, come to think of it, I don't know that I've ever heard a series on Hebrews. Exactly! Because it's insane. It's hard to make sense of it. Normally, when people teach through the Bible, they teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Hebrews is not conducive to that. It kind of follows the, the, the nonlinear Eastern mind Jewish philosophy of teaching. And so... Um, Feel, this is the point in the sermon where you're supposed to feel sorry for me because I'm jumping into the middle of this, trying to make heads or tails of this book, and it's a lot of work. All right, I'm not sensing any sympathy, and I resent you for it. Uh, so we're just going to jump into Hebrews. I'll do my best not to make a mess of the elegant foundation that my brothers have lain. We are in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to romp through 7, 8, and 9, wrap it up in 10, because that's what the text wants. You got to give it what it wants. As Pastor Daniel did a great job, I heard, of teaching, I mean, I heard online, uh, of laying out, Hebrews sort of moves in movements, but they wind through the text rather than this, these chapters and then these chapters. You go there and you get mired in the priestly order of Melchizedek and, and game over, right? So um, the movement we're in, movement two right now, Pastor Neil did an amazing job last week of kicking off, has to do with Christ and his sufficiency, right, in our lives. Well, we're going to pick that theme up in chapter 7 in verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, look on the screen. If you don't, here's what the Word of God says. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is, listen, the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and given the highest place of honor in heaven. So Jesus as contrasted here by the author of Hebrews to the priests of the old system, 
is a better sort of priest. He fulfilled that intermediary role in a more complete way. In fact, the priests that Jesus followed in the Jewish worship system were like signposts and placeholders, and he came and fulfilled that priesthood. So he's a better priest, and then it continues in 27, unlike those other high priests, he did not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins, first, and then for the sins of the people, second. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. And so Jesus in chapter 7 is revealed as the fulfillment of the priest and the fulfillment of the sacrifice. And this is one of the major theological themes of Hebrews. And you're like, man, you're killing me. It's June. It's Sunday morning. I don't want to think theology. Then you can't think Hebrews. And, and you're like, well, why'd you choose Hebrews? And I'm like, I didn't. That's why I was complaining. So maybe go back and give me a little sympathy. But since we're here together, let's just think about this for a minute. Then we'll talk about what it means for our lives, right? Okay, so um, Hebrews, you can't get around, is a, is a doctrine-rich book. It's about Christology, the theology of Christ, the Messiah, and how that all works. And what chapter 7 establishes is a contrast or a juxtaposition between the old system of worship, the priestly temple worship with the sacrifices of the animals and the squirting of the blood everywhere, and then the new covenant or the new system of worship, which Jesus inaugurated. And Jesus is a better priest than the old priests, and Jesus is a better sacrifice than the old sacrifices. And that, that he is both, is one of the major ideas in Hebrews. Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. And so that's our big idea, our premise for this morning. Both the priest and the sacrifice, and as such, Jesus is sufficient for our total redemption, not just for cleansing us or atoning for the sins we did the last week and a half, but for our complete redemption. Like the words of that old gospel song, he saved me to the utmost. He didn't just save me halfway. He didn't save me until next Tuesday at 4 p.m., he saved me completely. Jesus is a better priest. His sacrifice is a better sacrifice. And his hope is a better hope. And that's our title for this morning. Have you followed over the last decade and a half the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so-called? I mean, Marvel existed before cinema or cinematic universes, um, but when Disney takes things, they, they create a universe out of them, and they did a great job. My boys have gone from young elementary to high schoolers in the reign, the cinematic reign of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and so I've gotten quite into these stories, and admittedly, they're more layered and nuanced than the other superhero renditions. I am particularly fascinated by Thanos, you know, the like uber bad guy. He's really big, like big in the sense that he's really bad, but he's also just quite large. His hands are like seven and a half of my hands. And he, he's a complex character because he styles himself as sort of a compassionate and beneficent godlike figure. He aspires to be God, evidently. He wants to decide who gets to live and who gets to die and how the cosmos ought to be arranged. But he also has a, a sort of end game in mind, right? And, you know, like many 
if you read, if you're like, I don't watch Marvel movies, but I, I read, if you read Dan Brown's Inferno, you know, like many iterations of that plot trope where the world's getting overpopulated, and in that one, it's the crazy Elon Musk-esque billionaire genius figure who decides he's going to be a humanitarian by creating a plague and wiping out a portion of the world's population and thus thinning the herd. Well, that's essentially Thanos's shtick. Um, but he, he wants people to, he wants the Avengers to see the goodness of his intentions. And maybe from a certain point of view, there is some utilitarian goodness to the thinning of the cosmic herd, right? It wants to kill off half the population, is the bottom line. But it's for everyone's good. Um, the problem with Thanos as a leader and God figure is it's a very uncompelling vision of the future. It's a very uninspiring end game. As Pastor Daniel established in the first week, the meta-narrative, the overarching umbrella theme of Hebrews is undoubtedly a faith that endures. A faith that endures through the slings and arrows of outrageous human fortune, as Hamlet put it. The, a faith that endures through global pandemics, through 2020 elections, and through all of the conflict that was downstream of that. A faith that endures the hardships of being employed, being married, or in relationships. A faith that endures final exams and getting sick and losing loved ones. A faith that endures living in a city where 96% of the people don't know Jesus, don't go to church, don't read their Bible, and couldn't care less about the fairy tale we believe. I mean, from their point of view. A faith that can endure all this has to be built on something solid. That's Hebrews' meta-narrative. It has to be built on more of a hope than just satiating an angry God. A faith that endures has to be built on a hope that's more substantive than just keeping your head down and hoping you don't catch his gaze, like, you know, the prisoners of war in all the World War II movies, hoping the, the prison guard doesn't get him. A faith that endures has to be built on a hope that's more inspiring than a precise map through a minefield of religious rules. Like if you do all these things, you won't blow up because of religion. A faith that endures has to be built on a more hopeful premise than simply getting to the end unsmited. The old system, as the author of Hebrews calls it, competently showed our inadequacy, atoned for our sin for a time, and establish some religious precepts by which we might not get blown up. That as an end game is holistically insufficient. It's like Thanos' vision for the future. It might have a version of good, but I can't get behind that. It's not hopeful enough. And that's what Hebrews is juxtaposing to the better hope of this new system which Jesus came to establish. The old system was competent for its purpose, but it was insufficient for the longing of our souls. It was insufficient to adequately address the grandeur of our creation in God's image. 
that for which at the end of the day, our souls, even in spite of ourselves, know was what they're made for. And so Jesus offers a better hope, a hope that resonates with what we're created to be, who something deep in us knows we are and where we're supposed to go. And so the old system just pointed to a fuller covenant to come. Jesus, remember in the gospel said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he said, I didn't come to say, hey, this old system is not working, so let's kibosh it and we'll start over with a new religion. He said, I came rather to what? Fulfill the law. I am what all of the priests and sacrifices and temple atonement was pointing to. In chapter 8, Hebrews elaborates on this, and, and for the sake of time, I'm going to leave you to read that for yourself, but sums it up concisely in verse 6. Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God. So we saw in chapter 7, Jesus is the better priest and the better sacrifice. Then he goes on in chapter 8 the author of Hebrews does, to elucidate how his priesthood is superior. And then he goes on in chapter 9, which we'll look at in just a moment, to do the same with the sacrifice. Are you bearing with me? You tracking? I can review. Okay. Jesus is our high priest. He mediates a better covenant with God. His priesthood opens the door to a new, a different, a better relationship with our creator. In chapter 9, the first covenant, verse 1 reads, between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. And then the author goes on in exhausting detail to describe that temple worship of the old system. He'll juxtapose it to the new in a moment. But remember, this is when the priests would go in only at appointed times and they had to go through elaborate ritual cleansing. Down in verse 6, the story picks up. When all these conditions had been met and all these things were in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but not the second. Only the high priest ever entered that one, the most holy place. That's indicative or symbolic of the personal, intimate, and enduring presence of God. Only the high priest got to go there, and only once a year at that, and he always took blood for his own sins, for the sins the people had committed. The priests had to stay on the outside. They only got to go in under very precise conditions. In fact, Leviticus elaborates on the elaborate description in Hebrews and actually teaches that the priest whose turn it was to go into the most holy place, the intimate presence of God, they would tie a rope around his ankle and they would strap bells to him. You know what the rope and the bells were for? So that if he's in there and they hear him jingling around doing his thing, they know he's good. But if the bells stop ringing, they're like... Bruce, you all right? Bruce! And then they can grab the rope and drag him out by his ankle so they don't have to go in there and die. I know it sounds comical. That's how it went. The priests couldn't know God. How on earth could the people? 
Years ago when I was a young associate at a large church in Colorado Springs, I shared that the season of life with a number of staff my age, and we'd ski together a lot. I've skied since birth, since I can remember, and I love to do it. And uh, a number of them would snowboard. Some of us would ski. We had a new friend join the staff who had never gone to the mountains before, so he came up with us one week, and he wanted to snowboard. And um, my snowboard friends all, all took off, and I ended up with him because I knew him fairly well. And so he's asking me how to do it, and I, I've never snowboarded before. And I realized, pause, time out. When I say this, I've lived in Colorado a long time. I see it in you. I see what's happening here. When I say I've skied my whole life and I've never snowboarded, there's like a certain snowboard scorn vibe that I pick up. It's kind of akin to this one. When you tell people I don't like sushi, and they look at you like, oh, 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 you don't like sushi? as if there's like a moral imperative around it. Have you ever been condescended to by the sushi snob? Yeah, no one likes it, right? Well, likewise, we skiers, I don't think snowboarding is a crime. I don't think about snowboarding at all. I just enjoy skiing. And snowboarders find that so appalling. I don't get it. But anyway, um, I, I see beneath the veneer of your smiles. I see you're judging me. And I just, I'm, I'm not okay with it. So that happened, my snowboarding friends, but there's, there's mutual judgment between skiers and snowboarders, right? I mean, I was judging them too. They, they brought their friend, they got him outfitted in snowboarding, and then they proceeded to take off and do blue runs all the way across and stop every 10 feet to video themselves getting like three inches of air. And they're like, dude, that was so sick, like mad air. It's like, did you watch the video though? It was not, it was not really, I don't think it falls into the mad air category. It was like mini air. They were doing that. So it fell to me to teach our friend how to snowboard. I've never snowboarded. And so we're going down and I'm like, I'm pretty sure what you do is you like put it on the back edge and then the front edge. And I had like seven people after the first service tell me how to snowboard. I still am not going to adequately teach someone. So we get to the bottom. He's all bruised up and he's like, have you ever actually even done that? I'm like, no, but I'm the one that stuck with you. And so the, here's the irony, the sick, twisted irony of this is that for years, even now in our 40s, we get together for reunions. They mock me for teaching him how to snowboard when I had never done it, which is indeed mockable. It's just that they all took off and videoed themselves getting air. And so it fell to me and I'm still a little worked up about it. So thank you for the three, free therapy for a moment. How absurd is it when people try to teach us to do something that they've never done? That was Jesus' problem with the priests. He's like, they give you all these elaborate rules, but they're like blind guides. They don't even do it themselves. They draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. How could they lead the people in when they've never been there themselves or for like 10 minutes with bells, hoping they don't get smitten? Smitten? Smited? Smote? What is the past tense of smite? Hoping God didn't smite them. But Jesus was different, wasn't he? He knew God. Remember when they would talk about him, they'd be like, What's, what is this strange new teaching? It's like one with authority. It's, he talks about God like he knows him. And that's what Hebrews gets to. And if I could reduce it to like a main point... I think it's this. And you're like, man, this book is big and confusing and you said so yourself. How could you know what's the main point? Well, you could either do a deep dive into the original language or you could read verse one of chapter eight, which gives us a little cheat code and says, here is the main point, colon. <laughs> I mean, I was on vacation last week, so I had to kind of go the short route. 
Here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. You're like, how's that the main point? Listen, we have a high priest who all of the readers of this letter to the Hebrews would have, would have got this. This wouldn't have been lost in any of them. Over against, juxtaposed to your high priests who don't sit down in God's presence. They don't even go in there. They go in there fearing for their lives on tippy toes and with every muscle tensed. But we have a high priest who like pushes back the curtain, goes down, kicks back on the lazy boy and cracks a beer with God and watches NBA finals. And they're like, how is this possible? That's the main point. We now have a high priest who sits down with God. We have a high priest who knows him. And he's the one who is making the way for us plain. So before we go into what that means, let's just quickly uh, follow this rabbit trail. Why was the old system, a thinking person would ask, insufficient? What was insufficient about it? Why was it inadequate for full, unrestricted access? Why couldn't the priests know God, in other words? Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, romping through, in verse 9, the word of God says, the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people. They can cleanse the deed from the last week, but the core cleansing, the making new, they just couldn't do it. So, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, Jesus entered the most holy place for all time and secured our redemption forever. For the power of the eternal spirit, rather by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. So remember, chapter 7 lays out as a major premise for this movement in Hebrews that Christ fulfilled and was a better priestly temple worship system because he was a better priest and he was a better sacrifice. He was both. So then in chapter 8, it talked about him being the priest. Now in chapter 9, it's talking about him being the sacrifice. You following? So that was a little voice crack. That was a little Peter Brady moment. You following though? You know where we are? You with me? Okay. Um, So Jesus is our priest. Jesus is also our sacrifice. And his sacrifice was sufficient to restore full access to the Father. That's why it was better. It did what the sacrifice of the goats and the calves couldn't possibly do. Remember how in the Gospels it teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn? As a kid, I was like, that's kind of random. Why would the curtains tear? I'm picturing like the, the drapes, the panel drapes hanging on either side of the window in the living room next to the couch, you know, that coordinates with the rug or whatever. It, it was a curtain of curtains. It was like this multi-hundred pound monstrosity that hung between that outer room where the priests were allowed to go, the people couldn't go, and that most holy place, that inner sanctum that was indicative or, or symbolic of God's intimate and enduring presence. That curtain separated them. And woe to you if you went behind that thing. Well, when Jesus died, that curtain... <clears throat> tore in two, indicating that the barrier of our access to God, right, it was just totally removed. In chapter 10 in Hebrews, it says, this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. So this is the author of Hebrews quoting the Old Testament, which he does incessantly. He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah here. 
So the Lord says through Jeremiah, and Hebrews author is quoting it, I will put my laws in their minds. Here's what the new covenant's going to look like. I'll put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. So in other words, their religion isn't going to be this outside-in proposition where everyone's always wagging a religious finger and telling them, do this rule, don't do that activity. But rather, it's going to come from the inside out. I'm going to write it on their hearts so it flows from a heart that's renewed according to its creator's design. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. They'll know me. That's the new covenant. Everyone will know me. That's God's more hopeful end game. And so the bottom line is that faith that endures a faith that's worth building on, that gets us through all that life in 21st century Denver throws at us. A faith that endures is built on the better hope of getting to know God personally. Jesus didn't just sit down with God himself. He invited us to sit down with God as well. And so it culminates this idea in chapter 10, where he says, So, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven, boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. The and so is saying all this juxtaposition of the old and the new, all this imagery, all of this theology boils down to this. And so we can boldly enter his presence. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain and into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right in. Let us go right into the presence of God. That's the invitation. That's the takeaway. That's the glorious purpose of the book of Hebrews to tell us we can go right in. Jesus the better priest and the better sacrifice is sufficient for that full-time access. So the elephant in the room is, why don't we? When I was like 14 years old, I went to my first concert at the Worcester Centrum in Worcester, Mass. And um, it was Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet Tour. It was awesome. You, like, shot through the heart and you're to blame. You give love. Bad. You're looking at me like you don't like Bon Jovi, and that is fundamentally wrong. Jesus likes Bon Jovi. <laughs> so we got, we, it was back in the days where you'd call Ticketmaster, and you'd, and you'd, be on whole, you'd get the busy signal and call back and call back. So my buddy and I both called. Like, we started early in the morning. We called all day, and the first one that got through got two tickets, and this was for, like, later in the fall. We were at the beginning of the summer. So pumped for this concert, which was admittedly awesome, right? And so like a month or three weeks before the show, uh, this was the biggest show in America at the time. WBC in Boston, like the hard rock station where I grew up, had a radio contest for if you're going to the Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet tour, which I was. They had a contest for if you called in and answered some Bon Jovi trivia question on, on the air, you got backstage passes, two backstage passes. So I, was, I got my friend and I'm like, Ryan, 
we're in, we're doing it. So he came over, we slept, he slept over for the night and we started calling WBC at like 7 p.m. We were calling, 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 trying to, we never got on the air. But at one point something occurred to me and I stopped between calls and I was like, hey, um, it just occurred to me. Do you think Bon Jovi wants us back there? Like if you're John Bon Jovi and you just, you're still in like skin tight leather pants and you just poured your heart out in front of the Worcester Centrum and you finally get backstage and you kick your feet up and you get a bottle of water or whatever, do you want like two braces wearing pimply 14 year old boys in your mix? Like he doesn't want us there. And it was so discouraging. It never really occurred to me until that moment, but we, we hung up and stopped calling into WBCN because I'm like, he doesn't want us there. I don't want to go where he, he wants like the 21 year old girls that are hot, but they don't have to call WBCN. They just get ushered back in by themselves somehow. He doesn't want me there, right? I think that we think that God thinks like that. Are you following me? I think there's some subroutine in us that has had religion driven into us for so long that God's so annoyed that when we get saved, he's like, oh, okay, now I can barely tolerate you. But like, okay, so the curtain was torn. Jesus, sure, he wants Jesus in there kicking his feet back and cracking a beer with him. He doesn't really want us because he's, I, I'm a sinner and I'm in the hands of an angry God. And he's, even if he forgave me, he hasn't forgotten how disappointed he is in me. See, that's the religious narrative that so many generations of Christian religion has propagated. And that's the devil's big lie, isn't it? That's why we have this full-time access, I think, and we don't go. But did you know that your heavenly father wants you back there behind that curtain? He longs for you. He doesn't merely tolerate your presence behind the curtain. He hungers for it. What you find when you get to know God is not a God who puts up with us, but a God who treasures us. Jesus came to know God as a man at age 30 in a special way. He got baptized. He'd spent 30 years living a competent but unremarkable life. He came up out of the water and God broke through the space-time continuum and announced in front of all Israel that was gathered, you are my beloved. Jesus hadn't done one important thing. And see what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus restored to you and me that standing, that identity. He didn't give us something new. He like refurbished us, restored us to our original factory settings. And so God says to you and to me, you are my beloved. Henry Nouwen said, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. And so some, like me, some in the church leadership world infer, maybe we don't say it outright, get to know God and, you know, all your problems will disappear or all your dreams will come true. We try to weaponize it and, and commoditize the presence of God so we can market it because that's what we do in a consumer culture. We market and package things for others to consume. In actuality, friends, I think if we're honest, if we really get to know God, it's likely that our problems 
will not disappear and that many of our dreams will still go unrealized. But when we get to know God, it puts our problems in a whole new perspective and it equips us in a powerful, enduring and sustainable way to face them. And when we get to know God, while maybe all our dreams don't come true, we begin to dream the dreams of God. The psalmist wrote, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And so what if we've done with that verse, we've turned it consumerist and understood it to me. We've read it this way. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the objects of the desires of your heart, right? That's what we think. If I just do religion well enough and convince God that I really mean it and I'm in it for him, he'll give me the car. He'll give me the job, the spouse, the thing that I want. But that's not what it says. It says when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us new desires. He awakens desires that have gone dormant. He makes our desires that are from him more vibrant and he makes them attainable. And then those desires from God, he fulfills as if to say to our soul, you didn't know what you were missing because you didn't know what you were made for because you didn't know who you were. This isn't who we are. Our struggles aren't who we are. Did you know you're a daughter of the King? You're a son of the most high God. You are the glorious ones in whom is all his delight. That's a good place to say amen. So the word of God says, boldly, boldly, we should approach the throne of grace in a time of need. We're not an impertinence. We're not an inconvenience. We're not a screw up. And just like Kirsten's saying, we don't have to bring a trophy for him to approve of us just as we are. So if you'd stand with me, we're gonna conclude our worship by receiving the Lord's Supper together. That's what communion is, isn't it? It's boldly approaching the throne of grace in our time of need. And it's reminding ourselves, one another, our souls, our family in Christ, that we're the beloved. So we're going to receive communion as an act, as a, a faith gesture expressing this truth and resubscribing. Lots of us have been kind of operating on essentials only mode. And while that perhaps has been necessary in some realms of our life because of the challenges of the last year plus, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he invites us to come so we can come anew and afresh. Rediscover the secret place. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.